welcome to the Madden America podcast, your source for science, psychiatry and social justice. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Madden America podcast. This is Ayurdhidhar, your host for today. My search for different ways of understanding human suffering and health, ways that challenge the dominant psychiatric worldview and the Euro-American understandings of distress and disease have brought me to the writings of Dr. Elisa Lacerda Vandenborn. Dr. Vandenborn is a professor at the University of Calgary, and she's currently part of several large national and international research projects. These projects are examining education in indigenous communities and decolonization of mental health. Her interests include understanding different ideas of self, especially in indigenous communities. So Dr. Vandenborn, welcome to Mad in America. Thank you so much, Dr. Dar. It's uh, it's a pleasure to be here. I have uh, had the opportunity to listen to many of this podcast, so it uh, it is a privilege to be here. Thank you. Um, and if I may, um, I would like to start, uh, as we say it, uh, the right way and uh, with a proper and territorial acknowledgement of where I am. I'm currently in Calgary, uh, which uh, the Indigenous name is actually Mohkinsis. And Mohkinsis is where I live, I work, I get to do, uh, um, I get to connect with people, and I'm doing so in the traditional territories of the people of Treaty 7 region in southern Alberta. Uh, that includes the Blackfoot Confederacy um, of the Siksika, of the Bikani, and the Kainai First Nations, also um, of the Satina First Nations, and the Stony Nakoda, which includes the Chiniki, the Bearspa, and the Wesley First Nations. Mohkinsis is also the homeland of the Métis Nation of Alberta Region 3. Thank you. Thank you for, you know, acknowledging that. And uh, your work, a lot of it is in decolonization of mental health. So could you very briefly kind of tell us what does that mean? And also, how did you enter getting interested in decolonization of mental health? Did you find something missing in the way psychology was practiced? So I guess I'll separate this into two parts. I think that um, it's important to first define what we mean by decolonization, and I will rely um, on Chris Collar's Michael Hart um, and Gladys Rowe, um, that, um, that it's a process of correcting the oppressions that have been imposed on Indigenous peoples. And that uh, comes from the, the importance of actually dismantling the structural, the ideological, the historical and the cultural um, beliefs and practices and values that have cost Indigenous lives, um, Indigenous well-being, uh, resources, culture, land, families and communities. So when we think about that in, in, the, in terms of mental health, health, um, it is really about rethinking and really examining how our Eurocentric practices have contributed um, to the suffering and also to the continuous colonization of Indigenous peoples 
So when we are thinking in terms of mental health, I would think about ways that we can challenge sort of the single um, view that tends to permeate most of our practices in mainstream psychology in terms of um, rely the over-reliance on a biomedical model that um, thinks of uh, health and mental health as the absence of illness uh, or the absence of a particular disorder and rather thinking of individuals as holistic beings where the mental health is uh, is only one aspect of the emotional, of the spiritual, of um, the physical, and how those are not really happening in isolation, but they are intertwined uh, to a sense of place, to land, to the teachings of the land, to ancestral teachings, to a sense of history of that particular community. And how I got into this, um, I think that these things kind of have a way of finding us. And I think I became a little attuned to it uh, with my own experience, um, being a newcomer to Canada about 18 years ago, when I um, had a sense that, uh, that there was a lot that I lost. I, I remember being in my undergrad years in, uh, in a university with a uh, 35,000 students and feeling the most alone I could feel. And, um, and there was a profound sense of, um, the, of loss of community, loss of, um, of not being able to, to really be myself through language uh, um, and being in the space where I was the, the odd one out in a way. Um, and as I started to connect with particular, um, uh, with some difficulties when I sought counseling, I think it, it got located in my inability to cope and a lot of talk around self-esteem. And I thought it was quite um, interesting because I was really mourning the sense of uh, having a big family, big culture, uh, my cultural references, my ways of being, and, and it was being located um, within a particular aspect of me. Mm-hmm. And uh, while that may have been the case in terms of uh, some coping, I thought that, that there was a lot more to the story that wasn't making into the office. Mm-hmm. And I was thinking to myself, well, there's got to be another way of, um, of thinking about this. And I'm glad that I resisted that sort of approach and that kind of assessment. And instead, I turned that into an area of focus and selfhood sort of be- became my the, the entry point um, into how, how I was conceptualizing of myself um, in that encounter with that counselor and how the counselor was conceptualizing of who I was. Uh, so I think that there was a, a misalignment there. And that's what became sort of the, the, the main focus of my research then was in the conceptions of self. Well, I'm glad you resisted too, because I am all too aware. And we've seen people who enter the mental health systems, and then we kind of portray Indigenous communities as having just worse outcomes, and we throw statistics on them. I'm often asked, you know, I I give this little lecture about why people of color don't seek mental health services. And uh, the simple answer every time is, oh, there is just stigma within the communities. And we forget how the services often at all are not built for them. So you said there are these um, values and beliefs that are there in psychology. 
And part of the problem is that the way Eurocentric and Euro-American psychology works, it has these values and beliefs that are not very obvious. And then when we put them on other people, non-Euro-American populations, Mm -hmm. there is this disconnect and a conflict and there could even be harm. So have you seen cases in which like people were trying to put these one-size-fit-all services or interventions or treatments on people? Well, I think that unfortunately, there are plenty um, of examples that um, um, have been part of this journey for me. We, we know, for example, that in the child welfare system, that this very individualistic lens, it, we take this very intricate systems, uh, you know, this very intricate family systems, and then we intervene in a way that actually really detaches them, not only from themselves, but also from the context in which they are. So it's not uncommon to take families who are, who are going through very complex situations and um, and treat them um, uh, individually um, and to ignore the larger context. So we see, for example, um, families that are experiencing uh, so domestic violence, for example. And um, once uh, mom, for example, which um, uh, it may be mom, it may be dad, but uh, mom uh, seeks any kind of support, um, she is then analyzed as um, as being someone that either has has the strength to um, to cope with it and how she's going to proceed, then we may look at children uh, separately and. We see that even in social services, that what happens in when, when a family is accessing it, then they are uh, literally placed in, um, in different branches, right, um, of the kinds of interventions that we think that this family needs. And what tends to happen, particularly in cases where there is violence, for example, is that um, we end up with children in care. And I think that psychology is so incredibly intertwined in this in this process because the assessments, the intake, the assessment, um, our assessment of the well-being or the mental health of children of mom um, are um, are provided from a psychological language and the apparatus. So um, we end up with the situation that we are treating individuals separately. And in the end, we create this big problem where children are placed in care and the chances of mom actually getting children back, uh, they drop by 85%. Mm-hmm. So you instantly created more harm when we are not looking at families um, as, as systems and in the context of what they're going through, mm-hmm. such as poverty, such as uh, lack of access to to sustainable um, employment, um, little to no social support, um, after school care. So we see we take something that that has uh, so many of those uh, social references and we are attributing the problem to a particular uh, characteristic of coping mechanism of mom or the risk that exists to the child. Mm-hmm. So we are intervening and separating mom from child over the perceived notion of risk that is attributed from uh, uh, from an Eurocentric perspective. So if I was to think of an example, would it be like a big relational systemic problem is taken down to the mother is narcissistic, right? 
I'm trying to wonder how psychology is used in these cases. Like, what are the words? What are the what are the terms? And what are the concepts that we use? Um, and that individualizes this big, much bigger problem. Yes, I think that codependency is something that we see a lot. We uh, there is a lot of discussions around um, some major depression um, or a mother being too anxious and being in a position where that the social emotional needs of children are not being met um, and that serves as a justification for for um, you know um, to compose a case where um, the custody can be removed from mom right. uh, but little attention is being paid to the fact that mom is equally in need of support but in our system we are so, enmeshed in this adversarial approach um, to how we see things and particularly in family relations that um, we need to have someone who stands as the perpetrator and someone who stands as the victim from a legal lens. Mm -hmm. So, so there is very little room for considering the, the, the communal needs here. If you had to pick one thing that the current mainstream mental health system completely ignores or lacks one really just glaring thing, what would it be? I, I think that what I would say is a particular approach. I think that there is a sense that maybe if, um, those who are coming and looking for support in mental health are not getting everything that they need. And perhaps people may feel a little bit, um, a bit of a sense of hopelessness about, you know, I, I know that what I can offer, it's not enough for, uh, for this person who is seeking this kind of support. I think that there is a sense of exhaustion about um, engaging in this kind of deep work to see where are, uh, where is our approach coming from? What are some of the assumptions that we are making? What are some of those concepts that we are using? Um, do they really address uh, the needs of those who are, um, you know, non-white uh, that um, are, you know, that are from um, a lower socioeconomic status? I think that we we are still quite comfortable in refraining from from problematizing where we stand, even though we know that it's not quite working out. So, and I think that in a way we may lack sort of the entry points for this kind of discussion. I think that, um, I think that universities have a very large role to play here because I believe that in our educational system, I, I was lucky enough that um, in being in theoretical psychology, I think I had such a privilege in, in being able to, to sit with these ideas and examine this and think about um, how we conceptualize things, how we approach things, about theories that we are employing, what are the assumptions we are making, what are the tools, where did those tools come from, how are they being used, and what are the ethics, you know, how, how are we implicated in this, and, and what are the ethics um, of, these, of these approaches. So I think that What's happening is that we are kind of fast forwarding to to kind of the these are the practical ways in which we think about um, how uh, how we diagnose. I think that we, there is a lot of focus on assessment. There is a lot of focus on on naming. Mm -hmm. um, 
but I think that there is, um, and perhaps interventions that are very prescribed. But I think that what's really missing is the relational piece. And that's where social justice really comes in here, because we need to attend to our positionality and our intersectionality every time we are entering a particular office, right? Uh, any particular space. We are not as much as we like to think, yes, we are all humans, we are all people, and that's one aspect of it. But there is power. There is an analysis of power that's missing. I think that we just kind of keep spinning our wheels in a way because we're desperately trying to change the, the practical end of things. But if we don't revisit where we are uh, standing in terms of, um, of our philosophical traditions, our theoretical assumptions, I think, we, I think it's been an exercise uh, of frustration. And then that's where the exhaustion of those who are on the front line feel because they have been seeing practice uh, being changed over and over and over and over. You have done your research with community-led family group conferencing, right? Mm -hmm. So yeah. first, could you tell us what is family group conferencing, something about this research, and uh, what did you find? FGC, or family group conferencing, uh, is, is an approach that actually came um, um, from the Maori um, in New Zealand. Um, and this has, uh, is an interventional approach where um, we have a much larger understanding of family. Um, and here the concept of fana uh, is where um, we understand that, um, uh, that uncles and aunties and grandparents um, and those that are part of, of the clan, they have a role and they have a responsibility in child, um, um, in child development, in child rearing. So everybody has a responsibility to this child. I paid particular attention in how it was being used in child welfare. I had the pleasure of, of working with an organization in Winnipeg, Manitoba called Mama Wichita. This is a grandmother organization that has been working with, F with FGC since um, 2000. And they were gifted this program uh, by a group of Maori uh, from, the, from the north of Aratora. And they, they gifted this program with the understanding that that the importance of FANA was going to be upheld um, here in this program in Canada. Once a family is identified as at risk um, of the child being placed in foster care or the child has already been taken into foster care, the practice is to bring everybody who's important in that child's life. And instead of blaming mom and dad, for the difficulties that they are having. And this may include maltreatment, but it's important to say that particularly with Indigenous communities, the main category of involvement in child welfare, um, it's, it's thought uh, to be neglect. But we know that this is intimately connected with poverty. But in any event, how can we bring all of the important people in this child's life and say, what is the support that you need to be the best parent that you can be? And how can we be of support? Because we all have a responsibility to this child and to this family. We are all part of this. And in the typical system, in the mainstream system, um, families are seen as the, as the focus of deficit. Mm -hmm. And they are seen as those who, who, who cannot 
be trusted. And instead, in this program, you you give agency back to the family to say, you will create the plan. These are some of the concerns, but it's up to you to create a plan that it's sustainable, that addresses the needs that you're having. And these are relational needs. This can be uh, uh, some mental health needs. They can be housing needs, employment needs, support with nutrition, um, with structure, uh, with access to um to a number of services. And the way it works is that the community organizations say, okay, if these are your needs, this is what we can offer. So instead of a family having to go from place to place to place to place to try to find the services that they may need, everybody is in the room and everybody commits to the well-being of this child. And in this program, unlike the national average in Canada in child welfare assistance, which is that the plan of reunification, not reunification per se, just the objective of care is about 15% uh, as a whole. This program reunifies 80% of the families without re-entries into the system. We put the well-being of the families on the families, and they are the experts of, of their lives. They are the experts of their relationships. They know their needs. So instead of us imposing uh, or the child welfare system imposing a, s- a set of rules um, um, that do not take into account the context of the family, we listen. We listen and then we intervene. So it has been a phenomenal program. The mentors are actually part of the community, so they're not psychologists. Uh, They are actually uh, members of the community who have an experience of what it feels like to be um, in a place where discrimination is part of your daily life, where the lack of support, where people are um, oftentimes moving away from their communities uh, to try to access services um, uh, in a bigger center such as Winnipeg because these resources are not available in their own community. And when they do this move, they actually lose a lot of their community, of that support, of that built-in support that's part of community. And so it's about placing agency and loving. And I know that this is a very unpopular uh, word when we think of psychology, because it seems so, you know, airy-fairy, I guess. But it's how do you love families back to life but with accountability. How do we hold people accountable to the child, to the well-being of the child? But in the process, we are healing everybody. So elders are involved in this, knowledge keepers, a reconnection to traditional teachings, to ceremonies, to language. Uh, So you see, all that was stripped away with colonization is is really resurging and and being... um, reenacted, you know, like uh, reintegrated into this family's lives. It reminds me of like, even in my own research, and this was in rural parts of Northern India, every time there was any kind of a, of a crisis, but even financial or spiritual or like what would look like depression or PTSD symptoms to us, people would talk about, you have to get everyone together. You, you have to come back here to the land, through mm-hmm. ancestral land is what they would call it. And the ritual has to be done here and your whole family and family, of course, means, you know, the 18 uncles and aunts and cousins. 
And uh, it also includes your whole village. Also reminds me of um, like post the Rwandan genocide when yeah. psychologists kind of went in to help with, let's talk about your feelings. People were so confused. Like, why would you want to put us in dingy rooms and make us talk about the very worst thing that mm-hmm. happened to us over and over? Where is the sun? Where are the people? I wanted to ask about something you said, like child protective services uh, often impose values on, you know, their indigenous communities. Can you think of an example in which the way we enter to intervene as child protective services or as psychologists Mm -hmm. or as psychiatrists in which we are imposing our values on different marginalized communities? And this is the right way to do it. And this is what's healthy. You know, I think that you'd be hard pressed to... um, to find people who would speak openly about this, you know, to say that this is, you know, this is our, this is the reason why we are removing this particular child. That there is always a way of justifying. It's not uncommon, for example, in communities for families to have, um, you know, to care for each other and the kids to be in the community. And uh, maybe the parent is not um, in the same room or even in the home, but you always have, you know, neighbors checking in and, you know, uncle and auntie checking in and they come in. And But um, if a social worker would arrive at a home and the parent is not present and the child's under a certain age and that varies from province to province, uh, this is grounds for, for a child being, uh, you know, like moved because there's no adult supervision. So that is a particular lens of what parenting looks like, right? Uh, So you have to be physically present, but um, there is a different kind of understanding, especially if you are in a small community and if it doesn't align with Western values, I think that this become, it's almost like you start to create a little, uh, you know, a little memo of all of these things that are not quite aligning. And if something happens, then all of that is used against you. And there are interventions. We see this often uh, about, you know, for example, um, a social worker walking into a home and looking at the cabinets. And if there is no food in the cabinet, say, well, you're unable to provide the needs. But, you know, the mom is also hungry. Dad is also hungry. Or, for example, in Indigenous communities, we know we have a chronic problem of um, lack of proper housing. There is inadequate housing. There is overcrowding. And this is a treaty responsibility of the federal government. But the government is failing. Indigenous communities has been failing them miserably for decades. It has not been honoring treaties um, and treaty rights, you know, for centuries. And yet... The onus is on Indigenous peoples to make it work with lack of access to to potable water, um, to housing that's fallen apart, so to medical care, employment, um, educational uh, services like even teachers or schools sometimes. So if a social worker or a psychologist would walk into a community, the tools that are available to them is to then individualize it. It's to, The tools are not sensitive to the context. The big problem that we have in psychology is that it's not a very reflective discipline. I think that Nicholas Rose actually had a, a wonderful quote in your show to say that psychology has, has the tendency of saying yes to solving every problem. And that is a very big problem. 
<laughs> because we don't recognize that we what we currently have in the mainstream is absolutely oblivious or perhaps um, unwilling or reluctant to understand the context in which we are conceptualizing our psychological beings. So in the context of indigenous peoples, I am not understanding, you know, or maybe we're not equipped or willing to look at the fact that the colonization continues in many ways, that there is um, underfunding, that generations, um, our children and family are living in poverty, that every aspect of treated rights are being violated, that we are dealing with the aftermath of in of assimilationist uh, practices that have been egregiously devastating. And yet, all we are equipped to do is to describe and to diagnose, intervene with medication. And that seems to be the bulk of the kind of intervention that we are prepared to offer. Uh, so... Picking up on that, um, so I know when it comes to, for example, in the U.S., African-American communities, one of the things, one of the diagnoses we are most fond of flinging around is schizophrenia, and that has many different reasons, right? So have you seen certain psychological concepts that are, or terms, or words, or diagnoses that are used with Indigenous communities very liberally? One that comes to mind uh, is oppositional defiance disorder. And I think that in the context of child welfare, for example, uh, we also see ADHD as a very common diagnosis. We see um, FASD, fetal alcohol syndrome disorder, oh. as another um, uh, common diagnosis. Uh, and, uh, and I have to say, a lot of the times, a misdiagnosis. This young boy that actually... Um, grabbed my attention. And that's the reason why I have been doing the research that I'm doing today. It was his story that really impacted me in looking at how psychology is intervening. So I, I, I met this boy in a very brief encounter through, through a friend who was caring for him. Um, he was in, in her daycare. And she was talking about the fact that this seven-year-old boy was in his 17th home in the child welfare system that this child was would arrive in, um, in daycare and he would be absolutely drugged and she said i there's nothing i can do the social worker requires me to give him the medication at particular times this child is taking five different psychotropic medications to make his behavior manageable and these are the host of diagnoses that he has and that was such a shock um, coming from a collective culture uh, where I understand family as this, um, as this very important aspect of, um, of being, where I understand community at that very, uh, as this um, fundamental role in, in understanding a child and how a child develops. Um, at that time, I didn't know about the absolutely devastating statistics that we have of Indigenous children in care. Um, but it so happens that his reality um, was not in common. And this is actually the norm. So where I did my doctoral work um, in Manitoba, 
90% of children in care are indigenous. Across Canada, the the average um, of children in care is above uh, 55%. And sometimes the children, indigenous child population is 8%. So we, we see this absolutely disproportionate uh, number of children in care who are indigenous. And the same thing goes for, um, for families of color. So we are removing children from their homes. We are not taking into account the profound context of disadvantage that is associated with the reasons why these uh, children are removed from their homes. So children bounce from placement to placement to placement. And I know that this is also a reality in the U.S. and many other countries. We keep intervening individually and we're not paying attention to the context that is shared among them. And there is very little in terms of support. And so diagnosis becomes the intervention, but it does very little to help it How do families move through the world with more than a diagnosis um, um, and a prescription bottle? As a larger community, how are we being responsive and responsible for these families and for these communities? We know we have the information. We've had it for a long time. Why isn't that being part of how we are intervening? And I think that that's the role that universities can play. Because I um, and I think I will draw on Nicholas Rose again here to say that you know what is being enacted in legislation it's not coming out of government it's coming out of expert knowledge and we are complicit in this process. There is a global conversation around uh, indigenous communities and and restoration of justice and mm-hmm. things like that, but. There's a huge chance that it might get co-opted, uh, right? Mm-hmm. And that tends to happen. Um, I know Diane Million, who I think is an, is an um, American Indian scholar in the U.S., has a really cool piece of writing where she's talking about often political like grievances get co-opted by psychological ones. So we're like, hey, let's do therapy with you. Talk to us about our feelings. Mm-hmm. And a lot of indigenous communities like, can I get my land and water back? Can I have rights over my resources? And we're like, no, but let's talk about your trauma. Right. Do you also see this movement getting co-opted by like the mainstream psychological thing in which they they enter and they're like, yeah, let's work with indigenous communities. And then it's the kind of the same thing. (laughs) I'm glad that you brought that up because I think that this is, and this is a concern that uh, for those of us who are not in that position, right, like uh, uh, who are not in the reality of uh, of a particular community, that we have the privilege to step in and out of it, mm-hmm. um, it really requires us to be in that place of, uh, um, of self-analysis constantly. Are we going to keep doing the superficial things or are we ready to engage in this deep, positionality work and analysis and transformative work of decolonizing ourselves first. And it's a position of continuous epistemic uh, humility to be in the space of we don't know. For those of us who are not uh, from that particular community, it's our job to do our homework. It's not uh, on that particular community 
to have the onus of teaching us why this has been um, so devastating. It's like, are, are we taking, are we sharing the load here? Are, are, we, are we doing our homework and trying to understand the experience um, of this particular community so that we don't co-opt things, mm-hmm. so that we don't have uh, the appropriation of a particular um of a particular wisdom or knowledge, or or that we are doing uh, a partial understanding that we are just sort of sanitizing the things that will fit our way of doing things. And then you say, okay, yes, it is an indigenous approach because I incorporated this. Uh, in Canada alone, we have over uh, 600 uh, First Nations, but we talk about indigenous peoples. The values are, are similar across the board. When I go to Brazil, for example, in my projects in Brazil, where I'm engaging with 14 different nations in Brazil, and you see that each of them has a particular, you know, that they may have things that are similar and similar experiences, but because of where they are located, their reality is quite different. And the position that we should adopt should also be different. Are the folks that actually have, have the knowledge at decision making, are they making the decisions? Uh, are they saying what they need? And I think that that's our job. Our job is to really listen and to and to do our homework and connect with the experience so that we can understand and perhaps be in the position to to engage in decolonization in an ethical manner. As a very um, important child advocate here in Canada. So Dr. Cindy Blackstock um, has said uh, Indigenous children have been overrun by good intentions. You've also written about Indigenous knowledge, right? Even a lot of Indigenous treatments in mental health stuff are still measured and evaluated using the same kind of, you know, methodology, like a randomized control trial or something like Mm -hmm. that. What would Indigenous research methodology actually look like? Like, what are some of their priorities when it comes to what is knowledge? How do we evaluate what is a good treatment or something like that? Right. Um, Here in the spirit of not speaking for Indigenous people, uh, I think I'm going to orient um, our listeners to to really visit the profoundly sophisticated body of knowledge that looks at decolonizing research methodologies. There is a wealth of of body of research there, but I think that if I may share some of the things that I have seen that has remained uh, consistent across uh, many of these approaches is the the honoring of knowledge in relation. So it's understanding that selves are, are in relation. So how can we do research that individualizes, reduces, internalizes, um, and strips away the relationships. So I think a lot of Indigenous research is about that. It's about um, um, understanding how things are happening in, in relation to one another. So I think that qualitative approaches have been um, a way of doing things. Um, um, and it's a mistake to say that Indigenous uh, research methodologies do not involve, you know, um, So the quantitative um, aspect uh, of research that we see in mainstream, but that follows after we have a very robust understanding of the relationship. So I think that how do we honor that in the ways that we are seeing? And a lot of it, I would say, is connected to really being in relationship with a given community 
understanding and engaging the community in the kinds of things that we are interested in and understanding the research and, and methodology is a reciprocal process where we bring our gifts and, and the community shares theirs and we don't go with the questions. We, we are part of the community and, and the ethical aspect of that, that it's so connected to methodology is that you have to be in relationship and once a particular project ends, your ethical uh, connection to that community is not over. It continues long. You have a commitment to that community for the end of time. So if you had to think about a story or an example, right, um, and specifically in terms of mental health, what would it look like if we move towards a more relational or communal idea of self? A story that comes to mind is actually of, of one of the moms of my research, where uh, this is a single mom, a young, young single mom who's going through a lot in her personal life. Um, she was struggling with depression and um, struggling with um, handling uh, postpartum depression and having a child, um, feeling as though um, she had very little support um, in a condition of poverty and, um, and substance misuse became a problem. Once this mom came into this organization and uh, to seek support, um, the, the process is, is that a communal understanding of self is that if you're hurting, we are here for you. And yet I know it sounds uh, a very unscientific way of, of thinking about things, but essentially what that looked like, it is a wraparound sort of intervention where this mother is not understood, uh, is not defined by the kind of difficulties that she's having, but rather the strengths that she's, she, she has in terms of raising a child on her own. When we move from an individualistic lens to a communal lens, we amplify and we broaden the horizons of the kinds of services that we can provide a particular person. And instead of uh, locating the problem in the person and say, this is your inability to cope, is how can we as a community help to strengthen you in this position um, at this time of difficulty? Uh, we shift kind of the dynamic from deficit to strength, from support um, uh, first and diagnosis um, if needed afterwards. It's a more hopeful note, I guess, mm -hmm. and and it's connecting with people with where they are. That was wonderful. Thank you so much uh, for being with us and speaking with us. I can only you know thank you, and I guess uh, what I would say is that I would really encourage folks to to really uh, seek out all of this wonderful work that is being developed by our indigenous scholars. We know today that less than 1% of, of scholars um, are indigenous in academia, and they are carrying this burden. So um, it's important for us to, to really um, try to, to really elevate their work and, um, and educate ourselves um, and decolonize ourselves. Thank you for listening to the Madden America podcast. Visit maddenamerica.com for more news, views, and updates.